Today on Purdy's podcast, we'll study Columbus's voyages and the collision of cultures that followed. We'll witness the death of the Aztec Empire and the rise of New Spain in its ashes, all coming up on Purdy's podcast. Hello. This letter covers the encounter between Europeans and the indigenous peoples of North and South America in the late 1400s and early 1500s. Mainly, it's the, it's the Incas and Aztecs we're covering here. These notes serve as a backgrounder for our mock trial of Hernan Cortez and his interpreter, Doña Marina, or La Malinche, for the murder of the last Aztec emperor. So let's get started. Columbus's Four Voyages, 1492 to 1506. Christopher Columbus sailed to the New World on Spain's behalf, but he was an Italian himself from Genoa. Lots of skilled sailors lived in Genoa, Italy, and mostly they had been helping the Portuguese explore the west coast of Africa and set up trading posts and slaving operations there. Rather than exploring for its own sake, these early missions were for profit. Slavery was profitable, and the Europeans ignored their own Christian ethics and enslaved their fellow men and women. It was from these explorers' example that Columbus took his approach in the Americas. His wife's family pretty much taught Columbus his trade. Her grandpa had worked with King Henry the Navigator of Portugal, and her dad had extensively traveled up and down the west coast of Africa. Columbus sailed to Africa as well and observed Portugal's missions firsthand. Columbus begged Portugal to fund a trip to try to find a Western passage to Japan to conduct trade and spread Christianity there. And there was a rumor around Europe that there was a faraway, distant, legendary Christian kingdom uh, in Japan, which, of course, turned out to be false. The Portuguese turned Columbus down. We're too busy in Africa, they said. So he went to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. Did you hear we finally beat the last Muslim kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula? They asked Columbus. We're finally in charge of Spain, even Granada now. How awesome is that? Yes, students, Ferdinand and Isabella were feeling good about themselves. And so they sponsored Columbus, granting him the title of Admiral of the Ocean Sea and Viceroy of the Indies, and telling the shops in Cadiz, Spain, to give him what he needed for the trip. Previously, Spain had not been unified at all, and now the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon were together, and this leveraged tremendous resources for exploration. You can see the picture of Spain there at the bottom of page one. On August the 3rd, 1492, Columbus and three ships, the Santa Maria, Nina, and Pinta, 150 and 60 tons respectively, with 87 sailors, started their trip and after refitting in the Canary Islands for a month, wandered across the Atlantic Ocean for another month. After lots of grumbling from his crews, Columbus spotted some driftwood, spied a few birds, and thought that land must be close, and so it was. The ships arrived at a little island Columbus named San Salvador in the Bahamas, Sort of like how a big cruise ship docks now and all the tourists clamber out and hunt for t-shirts. The islanders greeted the Europeans, but they had few riches, wore no clothes, with a few covered in body paint. 
This can't be Japan, Columbus thought, but I must be close. Next, Columbus landed at Cuba, but few riches were there, either among the local Arawaks. However, the Arawaks did show the Europeans how to roll up a bunch of leaves called tabacos, which they enjoyed smoking. Columbus's second trip to the Americas came in 1493, when he sailed with a much bigger expedition to Hispaniola, Cuba, and around Jamaica as well. During this trip, he sent 500 Indians back to Spain to be sold as slaves. 200 died on the voyage home, and the rest shortly after arriving due to disease and mistreatment. Spain's Queen Isabella was furious at Columbus for this, as she had ordered that Indians were not to be enslaved, yet the crown, hoping for gold and to Christianize a new land, continued to back Columbus. In 1498, Columbus made his third voyage, discovering Trinidad, and tracing the coast of Venezuela for the first time, but he still did not understand and would never admit that he had not found Japan, but rather a whole new continent. Finally, Columbus made one last voyage in 1502, sailing along Central America's coastline, discovering present-day Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. On this voyage, Columbus's men had encountered a seagoing canoe from the Mayas, evidently going from the Yucatan to Panama on a trading run. However, neither boat stopped and neither group met the other that day. Columbus died in 1506 out of power and poor, but still certain that he had discovered the western route to Asia. Below you may see a detail from a Maya mural uh, in Chichan Itza of smaller canoes, perhaps seagoing, perhaps not, from the Mayan Golden Age, several centuries prior to Columbus's arrival. The Spanish had two other encounters with Mesoamerican peoples prior to their invasion of the Aztec Empire. In 1511, a crew of shipwrecked Spaniards washed up on the Yucatan coast near Tulum. Five of the Spanish sailors were immediately slaughtered on the beach and the others taken prisoner, some to be freed later by Cortes. In 1517, a Spanish expedition under Francisco Hernandez was defeated by the Maya at Champton in the Yucatan. Finally, the Spanish leader Juan de Grijalva tried another incursion into Mexico, even discovering Cuzumel for Spain, but ran out of supplies before he could do much else. The next year, Cortes stayed at Juan de Grijalva's house on the central southern coast of Cuba. And recruited, and recruited men there for his own vision and own mission to Mexico. Spain starts a new world empire, contact, contact and conquest of the Aztecs and Incas. From 1492 onward, Europeans' first contacts with the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean and Central and South America had several immediate and powerful effects. First, Many Spaniards and other Europeans died of tropical climate diseases such as malaria, for which they had, de they had developed no natural resistance. Two branches of humanity which had never intertwined finally met, and germs, as is often in history, played a big role in the rise and fall of empires and the deaths and lives of ordinary people. Second, Diseases affected the Indians even more dramatically than the Europeans, as the indigenous peoples had never encountered smallpox, influenza, bubonic plague, yellow fever, cholera, and the measles, which were deadlier back then, although there's a measles outbreak in Samoa presently that's been quite deadly. 
As one Spanish witness of the time wrote, quote, the Indians die so easily that the bare look and smell of a Spaniard causes them to give up the ghost. The peoples of the Americas had originally gotten there by walking across the Bering Streets, which was possible thousands of years ago, from Siberia. These killer diseases had either not yet evolved or were frozen to death on the walk with early people from Asia to North America. Also, being overworked by harsh Spanish overseers, cut off from their former culture and religions, and generally terribly abused, Indians' birth rates fell, and so there were few new healthy babies to replace those who had died. There are widely varying accounts of what the indigenous population was at the time of Columbus's first voyage in 1492. The island of Hispaniola, which contains the modern countries of the Dominican Republic and Haiti, might have had 50,000 people or anywhere up to 8 million, some historians estimate. Mexico down to Chile might have had up to 57 million people. At the time of first contact, there were all different kinds of societies in this part of the world, ranging from nomads to agricultural to some established urban environments like Tenochtitlan. The Spanish ignored the nomads mostly and focused on overpowering the places that looked most like Europe to them, the settled places, the empires, the richest spots. Third, the great native empires and civilizations of Mexico and South America fell to the Spanish and were replaced by colonial administrations ruled from Spain. This was not a predetermined outcome. And if the Spanish had been confronted more aggressively and in a more unified manner, they would have lost and colonization might have been long delayed. But the Spanish were playing a different game than the local peoples. And with superior steel weapons, horses, metal body armor for men and for their horses, war dogs, and rapidly spreading diseases, they toppled the Aztec and Inca empires in the early to mid-1500s. Cortes conquered the Aztecs in 1521, Pizarro, the Incas, in the 1530s. Class, by playing a different game, I mean that the Spanish and the Indians approached war differently. The Indians sought to capture prisoners in order to sacrifice them and to gain glory for individual warriors and for the empire. Wars were short with highly symbolic customs. The Spanish, on the other hand, fought to kill as many of the enemy as was necessary, to be utterly ruthless toward one singular end, to gain total power, to seize the reins of government to take gold and to convert the Indians to Christianity. So, for example, the great Inca, leader of the Incan Empire in modern-day Peru, thought for certain that he would just be able to buy off these Spanish bandits with gold, as that seemed to be the only thing they cared about, and they would leave. He paid them off, but they certainly did not leave. And you can see a lovely map of the Aztec Empire and the Inca Empire here on page 5. In their wars against the Aztecs in modern-day Mexico and the Incas, the Spanish kidnapped the supreme leader of the empire and held him for ransom in both cases, all the while exploiting divisions among the indigenous peoples. For the Aztecs and Incas had made many enemies among local tribes and peoples, and these enemies allied with Spain. In fact, with the Spaniards never numbering more than a few hundred soldiers, this war of conquest was more a war of indigenous peoples against each other than the Spanish conquering whole civilizations by themselves. Without their indigenous allies, Cortes and Pizarro would have gotten nowhere. 
Indians who lived far from the coasts, and especially up in the mountains, whether in Mexico or South America, resisted the Spanish much more successfully. They were better protected by their location from disease. The Spanish horses were not as effective in cavalry operations in the mountains, and the Spanish forces were far away from their supplies, which came from Spain to the port cities, like Lima, a new city in the former Incan Empire the Spanish built for this purpose. However, disease did much to defeat the Incas too. The Incas' great leader, Huayna Capac, died of smallpox, which had arrived from Mexico before the Spanish did, just before Pizarro attacked the empire. And so there was political chaos among the Incas at the worst possible moment. As discussed in further detail below, in 1521, the Aztecs learned quickly that the Spanish were fighting a total war and fought back fiercely. The Aztec leader Cuauhtémoc rallied his people against the invaders after Montezuma, the original Aztec emperor, had died while kidnapped, either at the hands of the Spanish or his own people, it's not clear. And under Cuauhtémoc, the Aztecs fought Hernán Cortés and his Indian allies, mainly the Tlaxcalans, block by block in their capital city, Tenochtitlan, until three quarters of the city had been completely leveled. Only then did he surrender and Cortes had him executed later on for allegedly conspiring against him, which we'll see in our mock trial. The Spanish then rebuilt the city as Mexico City, the capital of New Spain. Tenochtitlan continued on as a solely Indian district with some self-government, while the big new city grew up alongside it. More on that later. The biggest losers of the Spanish conquest of the Aztec and Inca empires were the leaders and nobility of the indigenous they lost the most, and it was the former nobles who led various indigenous-backed revolts against Spanish rule in the years following the conquest. The common people also suffered greatly in the new colonial regimes because they were turned into peasants working on farms called encomiendas, which were operated by Spaniards trying to get rich quick in order to go home to live an upper-class life in Spain. While priests like Bartolomé de las Casas below tried to secure basic rights for the Indians, they were still treated badly by the farm owners and suffered terribly under Spanish rule. On this page six, check out the postage, postage stamp from the government of Guatemala below, along with the statue of las Casas, which is intended to show his benevolence toward the indigenous peoples. To a 21st century observer, it has a different impact, I think, and seems to show the Indians in a negative light. What do you think? Class, even after the conquest of the New World, it took decades and longer for the Spanish to affect the lives of all the indigenous peoples. In fact, following the fall of the Aztecs and Incas, there remained a similarly complex and diverse group of tribes and civilizations. <clears throat> and certainly in Central America and in the interior parts of South America, indigenous cultures were much the same as they had been prior to the arrival of the Europeans. Yet always in the background of these social and political changes was disease and its catastrophic impact on the indigenous population. In the 100 years following Hernán Cortés' conquest of the Aztecs in 1521, the Indian population fell 90% in the area that is Mexico today, and in what is Peru today, the Indian population fell 40%. Because the Indian population was ravaged by pestilence, and in pursuit of more profit, the Spanish and other European co colonial powers brought West African slaves in chains across the Atlantic to work on their farms and in the silver mines. Accordingly, the history of South America and the Caribbean is a European, indigenous, and African history. 
When we take into account the robust trade between Lima and Spain's colony in Manila in the Philippines, and by extension, its trade with East Asia, then we can see this was a truly global story long before the 20th, 21st century and its talk of globalization. Uh, let's take a break there, and we'll pick up next with our discussion on how Spain conquered the Aztecs specifically. Thank you, and you're on Purdy's podcast. Hi, class. You're back on Purdy's podcast. This is how Spain conquered the Aztecs and the Incas. This will be helpful for our mock trial. Our mock trial concerns events that happened after Cortes and the Spaniards, where their Tlaxcalan and other indigenous allies conquered the Aztecs and were ruling their former empire. The mock trial takes place a few years after that conquest. Cortes and his original mission First off, by the time Cortes launched his mission to Mexico in 1519, the Spanish were not exactly thrilled with their new discoveries in the Americas. In fact, until the Bering Straits were discovered in the 18th century, Europeans were still sort of thinking the Americas were physically linked to Asia somehow. Anyhow, even with all of Columbus's discoveries on his four missions, and the successful establishment of colonies in Puerto Rico and Cuba, the Spanish had somehow totally missed the massively wealthy empires of the Aztecs and the Incas, but they were not to stay hidden to Spanish eyes much longer. In 1519, Cortes was 33 years old and cruising along in life, maintaining lands that his family held and working as a lawyer off and on, but he wanted some adventure. And while not trained at all in military affairs, he sought gold and glory and conquest in the New World. And this is what he had for his mission. 11 ships, 600 soldiers, 200 native Cubans, African slaves, horses, cannon, muskets, crossbows, and savage war dogs that weighed up to 200 pounds. Uh, he only had 19 horses and a dozen or maybe 15 working muskets, by the by. What he had in terms of an, an advantage we'll see below namely metal armor and steel swords. Cortes assembled this mission in Cuba, and then right before they set sail, the governor of Cuba denied permission to go, but Cortes blew out of Cuba anyway and sailed for the Yucatan Peninsula, which you can see on the map on page 8 at the top. Where they landed in the Yucatan, Cortes came across two Spaniards who had shipwrecked there back in 1511, which we discussed earlier on this podcast. One hostage, fascinating story, Gonzalo Guerrero had gone native, married a Mayan woman, and refused to go with the Spaniards. But the other, Geronimo de Aguiar, a Catholic priest, cried hallelujah and headed off with Cortes, acting as his first interpreter because he knew a Mayan language or two. There were an estimated 350 separate languages spoken in Mexico and Central America when Cortes arrived. Aguiar told Cortes... His other shipmates had been the victims of human sacrifice, and this is possible, but historians are not certain. Sorry. On one of the next stops on the journey, the local indigenous tribe sold the 16-year-old La Malinche, later called Doña Marina, her native uh, name is lost to history. They sold her to Cortez, and she was a fantastic addition to the mission, 
mainly because she spoke Nahuatl and its variants, languages spoken by the Mexica and other tribes in the Aztec Empire, and she spoke Mayan languages as well. Once she learned Spanish, she was able to act as Cortez's full-time interpreter. She was able to speak Nahuatl uh, and was familiar with the Aztec dialect because she had been held as a slave previously by um, one of the Aztec tribes, one of the, uh, the Mexica. So she was not crazy about the Aztecs at all. In fact, she saw them as her main enemy, not the Spanish, the Aztecs. Cortez kept her close by him for the whole year. After the Aztecs had been toppled, she had a son with Cortez. But when Cortez's wife came to Mexico, uh, Doña Marina La Malinche was married off to another officer. She lived for only a few more years and died at 24. Meanwhile, Montezuma had sent spies to watch the Spaniards down in the Yucatan, and what they told him freaked Montezuma out a lot. The Aztecs and other indigenous tribes did not see the Spaniards as gods. Far from it. In fact, when the Tlaxcalans fought the Spaniards, they tested this theory by holding a prisoner of war under a river until he drowned, showing that the invaders were not gods but died as easily as any men. The Nahuatl word for the Spanish was tul, which was translated as God by the Spanish, but which had another meaning too, demon. Unfortunately for the Aztecs, Montezuma apparently was rather superstitious. The Aztecs, uh, or the Mexica rather, had only recently come down into the Central Valley of Mexico and conquered the peoples living there. There was a very old Mexican legend, told by the Aztecs' predecessors, the Toltecs, whom they emulated, that a hero or god in the form of a feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl, had sailed away far to the east a long time ago, but like King Arthur, promised to come back one year in a specific year in a specific year named Se Asatl, which came around once every fifty-two years. That year began in February fifteen nineteen, the year Cortez attacked, and it seems likely that Montezuma thought Cortez was Quetzalcoatl returning to scoop up his old kingdom. Quetzalcoatl below had been worshipped for centuries. You can see the picture of him below there on page 9. From about, from about 2000 BC onward, and it far predated the Aztecs, the belief in this feathered serpent. Montezuma worried his right to rule Mexico might not be as strong as the returning Quetzalcoatl's right to rule. As one historian described, Montezuma felt like a presumptuous butler caught playing lord when his master returns. Weak leadership kills empires, and it did so here as well. After Montezuma sent spies, he sent ambassadors to Cortez, who treated them rudely, threw them into chains, blasted a cannon near their ears, got them drunk, and tried to get them to fight as warriors in one-on-one -on -one contests to see who was stronger. But they were able to escape, to give reports of the Spaniards, their weapons, and their animals to Montezuma, and, quote, he was filled with terror. It was as if his heart grew faint, as if it shrank. Montezuma was overcome with despair. The Spaniards determined to mark on, march on Tenochtitlan, the capital city of the Aztecs, but were blocked and battled fiercely by the Tlaxcalans, who were also enemies of the Aztecs. These warriors had no metal weapons, but their obsidian blades, obsidians like uh, volcanic glass, were sharp and killed some of the Spaniards and their horses. 
Still, they had no answer for cannon fire and were defeated after a couple of sharp battles. The Spaniards were harsh to their Tlaxcalan enemies. When ambassadors of peace were first sent to Cortes, La Malinche declared they were enemies, and Cortes had their hands cut off and sent them back handless. But after another tough battle, the Tlaxcalans made peace and agreed to help Cortes fight the Aztecs. This was not surprising. The Aztecs had forced their enemies to pay tribute in gold and silver and sacrifice prisoners seized in battle at the Temple to the Sun God. By the time Cortes and the Spanish had arrived, the Aztecs were struggling to hold on to power because they'd made so many local enemies. Bernal Diaz, who was one of the mock trial witnesses and who fought the whole way with Cortes, recalled, We wondered what would happen to us when we had to fight Montezuma if we were reduced to such straits by the Tlaxcalans who are simple and allies described as a peaceful people. Finally, the Spaniards made it to Tenochtitlan, and they were amazed by the sight of this well-ordered huge city of 200,000 people. The city had its main buildings located in in its center, with houses and apartments radiating outward. Floating gardens on the edge of the city in Lake Texcoco sent fresh fruit and veggies to the city center. The city was crisscrossed by a series of canals, and fresh water was brought in through an irrigation system. There were schools, public restrooms, and the city streets were swept clean by government workers every day. Barges took waste away and used it for fertilizer. All these useful things helped to make Tenochtitlan one of the world's largest cities. When Cortes and Montezuma met, where the Pino Suarez metro station below on page 10 is located in present-day Mexico City, it was tense. Montezuma had already tried to flatter Cortez, trick him, and buy him off to make him go away. It's not clear many years later through the mists of history, but it seems that Montezuma was now treating Cortez as Quetzalcoatl returned to take his kingdom back. Incredibly, he invited Cortez to stay in peace as his guest. This hospitality must have been hard on the Aztecs, who were refined and who bathed daily and found it advisable to hold flowers to their noses when they met Europeans, who made a point of being filthy. The stinky Spaniards didn't believe in bathing too much, as this was the long-standing custom of their hated Muslim enemies, the Moors, back home in Spain and in North Africa, so apparently the Spanish stunk to high heaven. The Spaniards toured Tenochtitlan extensively and liked what they saw. Their first approach was to try to get Montezuma to convert to Christianity because the Spaniards, who already had fought Muslims for centuries in Spain itself, hated other religions and found the Aztecs' beliefs simply brutal and horrifying. But this annoyed Montezuma, and then it offended him. He denied offers of conversion. The Spaniards now turned to kidnapping and intimidation. After a local governor had executed a few Spaniards, Cortes seized Montezuma, or rather placed him under protective guard, ordered the local governor and officials sent to him, and had them burned alive. This shocked the Aztecs, who were used to ritualized killings with very sharp blades, an orderly if gruesome death in its own way, but not a horrific burning. The rest of the story I'll tell quickly. Montezuma was held for a huge ransom, which the Aztecs paid, but while he was under arrest, either the Spaniards killed him or the local people stoned him to death while he stood out on a balcony of his palace. Probably the Spanish killed him. 
instructor editorial. This raised a firestorm of protest, and the Aztecs threw the Spaniards out of their city on La Noche Triste, the Night of Sorrow, killing 75% of the 1,200 Spaniards and a few thousand Tlaxcalan allies. Two-thirds of the Spaniards' horses were killed as well. The Aztecs had adapted to fighting Europeans, barricading their streets so horses could not be used effectively in such close quarters. Many of the Spanish drowned in Lake Texcoco because they were weighed down by their body armor and all the gold they were trying to loot from the city, which is an irony. Things were at their lowest for Cortes. It seemed possible the Aztecs would survive and recover sufficiently to defeat the Spaniards altogether. Indeed, Cuauhtémoc, later to be Aztec emperor, had nearly persuaded the enemy Tlaxcalans to abandon Cortes and join with the Aztecs in an Indian alliance. History seesawed between the Aztecs and Spanish. But then Aztec resistance was crippled when Montezuma's heir, Cuitlahuac, died of smallpox. He only ruled for two and a half months. And indeed, the Aztecs were now dying in the thousands from this and other European diseases. On page 12 is an image of Aztecs dying of uh, smallpox from contemporary source. Cortes got reinforcements from a separate Spanish campaign, which was not intended to help him. He just seized them as reinforcements by force. And with help from the Tlaxcalans, who wanted serious revenge and from disease, the Spaniards wrenched Tenochtitlan from the Aztecs, now led by Cuauhtémoc, street by street, like some horrible World War II battle. Most of the city was destroyed, 80% of the Aztec army was killed, and most of the survivors were pressed into slavery. The Spanish reinforcements had brought more iron weapons such as crossbows and harquebuses, muskets placed on a stand and fired with a long wick, and even more horses in full body armor. Anytime the Spanish caught the Aztecs on open ground, they slaughtered them in cavalry charges as the indigenous peoples had not gotten the memo from the Swiss or the Scots on how to fashion pikes to defend infantry in a hedgehog-type formation. Cuauhtémoc fought to the last minute and to the last man, but finally surrendered. The last Aztecs battled from a boat out in Lake Texcoco, but finally there was no city left to defend. For 80 days, the Spanish burned it, filling the canals in with debris, pulling down all the houses and apartments. Only their pyramids remained in the end. As a contemporary Mexico poet said, Broken spears lie in the roads. We have, we have torn our hair in our grief. The houses are roofless now, and their walls are red with blood. As Rome did with Carthage, the Spanish built a new city, Mexico City below, directly on top of the Aztec one, and began their rule of New Spain. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Purdy's Podcast, and have a great afternoon.